0: Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Uh, all right, so we are in the book of Joel, and we're going to be studying Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17 last week. Doug did a really good job at, at, at make, making us aware of the reality and the, the, the direness of the situation in Israel, and particularly in the southern kingdom as this uh, swarm of locusts invaded. And so last chapter, as we saw, it focuses more on, on all the damage that these locusts are causing uh, to the fields, to the produce, to the trees. Um, they are left without the fruit of the vine. They are left without trees. There, the, there's also a drought. There are also fires going on, wildfires. And so the situation is just really bad. And if you thought that today was going to be better, well, it actually gets worse. Things, things get really, really bad for them. Although today we are going to see some hope actually a lot a lot of hope in this book um but i think for us to really understand the beauty of hope the beauty of the announcement of salvation we need to become really really familiar with the announcement of judgment right that that is that is the gospel the gospel is the good news of salvation but salvation from what Salvation from, from God's judgment, right? The gospel is not God wants you to have your best life now. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not God wants you to perform as well as you possibly can and then he'll let you into heaven. No, that is not the gospel. The gospel is you are under God's wrath because of your sin. And the good news is that God sent his son Jesus as the sacrifice to atone for that sin so that if you trust in Him, you can be saved from God's wrath. That is the gospel. And so today we're gonna we're gonna marinate a little bit more into that aspect of God's wrath of the day of the Lord. And so let's read. Let's read uh, verses one through eleven, and I'm gonna stop at, at verse eleven intentionally, and then we're gonna go into the next section. So verse. One says, chapter two, verse one says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we look into this um, deep and somber topic, Lord, that is your wrath, your judgment. May we not take it lightly. May we not look at it in disdain or indifference. May we not commit the same mistakes that the people in the time of Joel were making, of thinking that this would never happen to them. May we take this warning seriously, And as we look at the heavy, the heaviness of the day of the Lord, may we be even more thankful and may we glorify you even more for your great salvation, for your willingness to forgive, to save, to restore. I pray that your name. I pray that the name of your son, Jesus, would be glorified in this, uh, in our gathering today, Lord. And as we look at the book of Joel, God, I pray that we would be reminded of your steadfast love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, again, this, this... Particular section is describing this invasion of locusts, but it is taking it to the next level, right? Like he's turning it up a notch. Um, He is describing the invasion of locusts, but now he is using poetic language that almost makes it sound like there's an actual army invading them, right? He is comparing the invasion of locusts, the swarm of locusts. He is comparing it to an army. He is comparing them as the horses of an army, the chariots of an army, the, the soldiers of an army. But this entire section is nicely bookended by verses 1 and 11. And there are two really shocking things, two really sharp things about these two verses. So in verse 1, what is the first Shocking thing that we see here. Well, the Pro- sorry, let, just really, really quick. Let me backtrack. The prophet Joel, he, as he is describing this, the seriousness of this event, he is realizing that this event is so serious, that this invasion of locusts is so bad that he is beginning to realize that this is, in a way, the day of the Lord happening Upon them, right, and you see that in verse, uh, in chapter one, verse fifteen, he as he is describing all the invasion, as he is describing everything that is happening, he makes this warning in verse fifteen, and it says, "Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and destruction from the Almighty it comes." And so he is realizing that this destruction that is coming is actually a foretaste of the day of the Lord. Now, these people, they were familiar with the day of the Lord. They they knew what it meant. They knew that the day of the Lord meant that God would go attack his enemies or their enemies, and then God would deliver them from them. They were very familiar with this concept. It was a hope that they had, and it was the way that it had always happened, right? They, They would get into trouble and... An army would come and invade them, but God would deliver them. They were in slavery in Egypt, and they were in trouble, but God, the Lord, he went and delivered them in the great day of the Lord as he sent all of the plagues into Egypt. And so in their minds, the day of the Lord always meant God coming and fighting against their enemies and delivering them. So what is the shocking thing about verse 1? It says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Zion is the, the, the holy mountain of God, the, the making reference to Jerusalem, to Judah. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming near. So the shocking thing in this, in this first book end of this section is that the day of the Lord is coming, but the day of the Lord is not coming upon their enemies. The day of the Lord is coming upon them. The city of God, the holy mountain, is actually under attack by this army of locusts. And so remember, there were a lot of people in Israel, particularly in the southern kingdom, in in Judah, that they could have never imagined that God would allow His holy mountain to be touched, to be invaded, to be penetrated by uh, an enemy army. But in this case, God is revealing to them through the prophet Joel that the day of the Lord is actually coming upon them because of their disobedience. And so this is something important for us to realize because as we look through the direness of the day of the Lord, as we look at how terrible things are for them, one of the mistakes that we could make is say, oh yeah, you know, but the day of the Lord is this future event that You know, we're probably not even going to be alive when it happens. And if we're alive, the rapture is going to happen first. So we're going to be good to go. It's just a bunch of people suffering. And yeah, that's too bad for them, but I'm good to go. But really what we're seeing in Joel so far is that, yes, even though there will be a final and ultimate day of the Lord, the judgment, the wrath of the day of the Lord can be experienced at any time. If God wants it, if someone, if a people, if the people of God, if the church continues in disobedience, a display of the day of the Lord can be shown. And so let us not be like like the people here in Israel and, and think, oh, this would never happen to us, but rather let us be alert. Let us be always in obedience to God. Let us always be faithful to God. Let us always be following Him. And also, when things are happening, let us realize that they don't happen by accident. In fact, we're going to get to that next. So let's go through the description one more time, and then we'll get to the next uh, to the next bookend. And before we get there, one of the things that, one of the things that, that, I, that is important for us to remember is that in the words of Peter, the apostle, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so, uh, O. Palmer Robertson he, he, One of the guys that wrote a commentary on Joel that I read, he says, It is an established principle of God's working in the world that God's judgment must begin with his own people. And these judgments are always imminent. No man even, sorry, no man ever has the right to presume that judgment for him will be delayed beyond the present day. Especially God's own people must realize that judgment begins now with them. So it is established. God says it. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And as we've talked about in the previous two sermons, one of the most direct, if not the most direct application for us today in this book is actually for the church. Remember, the book of Joel was written for the people of Israel, specifically the southern kingdom. But as we read this today, since we know that the church is the people of God, the household of God, this passage applies specifically to us. So this is not talking necessarily about this nation, the United States, repenting from the sins of this nation. No, no, no. This is talking about us as a church realizing that if the church of God lives in disobedience to him, we can actually experience a foretaste of that wrath, that punishment, that discipline from the Lord. And so let's just look at this. And and as we look at this section, let us see, let us notice one thing, that as Joel is describing the situation in this day of the Lord situation for them, the line between what is happening to them at the time and what will happen in the future day of the Lord is actually becoming a little bit blurred. And that's one of the things we need to realize with prophecy, that prophecy oftentimes is not nicely divided into little squares and we say, okay, this one applies to this, this one to this. But rather prophecy, a lot of the times, even the prophets that were writing them They are wondering, who is this for? Who are these things written for? So in a sense, Joel might have been saying, okay, yes, this is the situation that we're going through right now. And this is what God is having me tell the people of Israel. But this is also, it it carries language from a future day of the Lord. And so as we look into this description, let us think about, let us marinate, if you will, Into an understanding of the wrath of God. That's not something that that's not a phrase that you'll hear very often. Let us marinate in the understanding of the wrath of God, but I think it is good for us to do this exercise. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness. And gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So he's comparing the locust to a people, right? A, a, A group of people, like an army. And he is compared, he's talking about the day of the Lord as this day of darkness and gloom. This thick darkness that no one can really escape. And that's how it will be. The wrath of God is something that, apart from God's grace, no one can escape. Verse 3, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So he's describing the land is plentiful before the, the locusts come. The land is beautiful. There are trees. There is produce. There is everything. But when the locusts come, they come and the land is completely devastated. There is nothing left behind them. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, they run. So the locusts are compared to horses. Their running is compared to horses. And with with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. So he is showing the picture of the locusts coming. And there you can see them coming from the tops of the mountains. They're leaping. They're flying. Like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble. So actually, there are testimonies of people who have been in the desolation of an, of an invasion of locusts. And they actually say that when they are coming, their flying actually sounds like the crackling of fire. Or they sound like chariots. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Verse 6, before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run up the walls, upon the walls, they climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. So one of, the, one of the really bad things about the locusts is that unlike a human army, a wall can't stop them. Weapons can't really stop them. Try to, try to swing your sword against an invasion of locusts. I mean, you might get a few, but that's all. Try to build a wall between you and the locusts. That is no no hindrance for them. They actually go into the houses. In Israel, at that time, their houses, they didn't have glass covering their windows. It It was open. So imagine you're there in your house and the locusts are inside your house. They're eating all your food. They're just all over the place. They do not jostle one another. They're just going in their path. There's nothing you can do to stop this mighty army. Verse 10, The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. So, the cloud of locusts is so thick that they even cover the the visibility of the sun. You cannot see the sun or the moon when it's night. You cannot see the stars shining. But also, this is an image that many other authors, biblical authors, have picked up. To talk about such an apocalyptic scene, in which the day of the Lord is in view, and so it doesn't mean that every time that they say that the moon is darkened, or that the the stars withdraw, that the sun and the moon are darkened, and that the stars withdraw their their shining, it doesn't necessarily mean that every time they say that is referring to a swarm of locusts, but rather the language was picked up by other authors to refer to the day of the Lord, a day of Gloom and darkness. And so we get to the bookend of this section and we get to the, to the second really shocking statement here. The first one was that the day of the Lord was coming upon God's own people. It was coming upon the city of God, which a lot of people thought impenetrable, but it was coming upon them. But here is the thing. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great he who executes his word is powerful for the day of the lord is great and very awesome who can endure it so what is the shocking here the shocking thing here it is the lord himself directing this army this invasion of locusts is not just an, an act of Mother Nature. It's not, a, it's not a side effect of global warming. No. This is the Lord himself deploying his army of locusts and sending them against the people of Israel. This is God's doing. And this is, this is shocking because, again, when would the people of Israel think That God, the covenant God that delivered them out of Egypt would now go against them. And so what is the the deal here? Is God being unfaithful to his covenant? No. God is keeping the covenant. The people of Israel are the ones who are being unfaithful. And like we saw last week, God warns them. He makes a covenant with them and then he tells them, but if you disobey, if you are unfaithful, then these curses, the same curses that I used to deliver you from Egypt, are the same curses that I am going to send upon you. And so this entire chap this entire section is a section of complete direness and, and uh, just it's a horrid situation in which God Himself Is sending a day of the Lord magnitude event upon his own people. And so we need to learn to think biblically throughout all of the events that we encounter throughout history and through and, and all of the events that we see today. Oftentimes we think of events and say oh you know these things just happened by by chance or they're just you know a result of nature and things like that and and in a sense yes god created the world to function a certain way but at the same time we realize we acknowledge that god is sovereign over all of his creation. And so when a catastrophic event happens, God allowed it to happen for a reason. When something happens to us, God in his sovereignty directed to happen that way. And so one of the things that my mom would always ask me when I was, uh, when I was younger, whenever something happened to me, I don't know, I, um, I had an accident, I I broke a bone or or failed a class or something like that, she would always ask me, what do you think God wants to teach you through this? And at times, I I, I hated the question, like, what, what does God have to do with this? Well, God has everything to do with it. God in his sovereignty is directing the events in this world and so we should ask, what does God want to teach us through this? As we look at, you know, this world, huge, like worldwide crisis, whether the pandemic itself or the response to it is a crisis, we don't know. But why, why is God allowing these things to happen? I mean, something as simple, as this, I don't know if you remember this summer. Of course you remember this summer. Remember when there were a lot of wildfires? I mean, you you stepped outside your house and it looked apocalyptic, right? Like you look at the sun, you can barely see the sun. It was just this, you know, little orangey circle. Why did God allow those things to happen? And, you know, I'm not ready to to go and make a, a judgment and say, oh, well, you know, this is the day of the Lord happening upon this nation. But I'm also not willing to say, oh, no, that would never be the case. I don't know. You know, God in his sovereignty, he can deploy his divine arsenal and do whatever he wants to do. But there's one thing that I do know, and this is why we title our series, Salvation Through Judgment. And the thing that I do know is that God doesn't just send judgment for the sake of sending judgment, for the sake of destruction, God doesn't just warn people about his judgment just so that they know that they're about to be fried. Rather, when God sends judgment and when God warns people about his judgment, that is God acting in mercy. That is God getting ready to save some people. Think about the prophet Jonah. When God sent Jonah to Nineveh to warn them against the judgment, why was Jonah so upset? Why was he so reluctant to go to Nineveh? Because he knew that going to Nineveh and warning them against judgment meant that God was giving them an opportunity to repent. Had God not let the people of Nineveh know that they were under God's wrath, then, you know, they would have just they, they would have gone, went on in, in their sin and, and they would have been fried. But the fact that God sent Jonah to Nineveh meant that he was giving them an opportunity to repent. And so the fact that God is sending this judgment to the people of Israel here in the book of Joel and the fact that God is describing what is happening to them and what will happen to them Is God's mercy. And we see that in the following section, verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will, sorry, who knows whether he will not turn and relent, and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her, cha- her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So notice that even though this day of gloom and thick darkness, this awful day that no one can endure, is described so vividly here in chapter 2. God, after after they've realized their, their terrible situation, the terrible spot that they're in, They are ready to hear God's plea. Yet even now, even in the middle of this disaster, even as the locusts are hanging out in your kitchen, eating your food, even now, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, rent your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. When God sends judgment, when God sends punishment, when God sends discipline, the purpose of it is that we would return to Him, is that we would repent. And I think it is important there to notice that repentance means returning to God. Repentance doesn't just mean stopping what we're doing And then moving on to the next thing. No. Repentance means stopping our sin and returning to God. Returning to Him. Rendering our hearts, not our garments. It doesn't mean putting on a show. It doesn't mean doing what we think we have to do to show that we are repentant. It means actually rendering our hearts. It means saying, God, I have nothing left to offer. I have nothing. I need your mercy. And so God appeals to his own character. Verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. This is the same description of himself that he gave them at Mount Sinai, the second time that Moses was receiving the law. So remember, he went up once, he received the law from the finger of God, and so, as you know, everything was going awesome up there, but as he went back down, everything was going terrible. They were worshiping the golden calf, Moses got angry, he broke the tablets, and so the second time around that he goes up, God could have just, fried the people, destroy them in his anger, and he would have been right to do so. But he gives them the Ten Commandments again. Moses writes them down, and God describes himself as gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. So remember, God is not just sending judgment and punishment and discipline for the sake of destroying the objects of that punishment. He is sending it to get people ready to turn back to him in repentance. And even then, he is reminding them of his character. He is reminding them and saying, I am this merciful, gracious God. I am so ready to forgive you if you would turn to me. Now, this, there's something really cool here in, this, in, chapter, in verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. In chapters 1 and 2, especially in chapter 1, the, in chap, the entire chapter It's about how the people have to weep and lament and cry because all of the produce of the earth is gone. Their grain offering that they would give to God is gone. Everything that they would normally offer to God so that they could be in relationship with God has been taken away from them by the locust, ultimately by God. And so really what God is doing with these people is because as a consequence for their sin against God, their apathy against God, the, their wrong worship of God, He has brought them to the very bottom. He has brought them to a place where they have nothing left to offer to God. Even if they wanted to offer a sacrifice for God to forgive them, they have nothing. The locusts eaten everything. And so notice here the call to repentance is not offer a sacrifice. There's nothing to offer. The call to repentance is cast yourselves onto the merciful hand of God and who knows maybe he will relent and maybe he will leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering. For the Lord your God. According to the Old Covenant, in order for them to remain in relationship with God, they needed to offer sacrifices. And so, restoration for them meant that if God decided to relent, he would give them the necessary means for them to continue in a right relationship with God. And so this is similar to us. When we sin, when we continue sinning, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with God is damaged. And oftentimes we are so damaged to the point that we have nothing left to offer God. And so we get to a point of repentance of saying, God, I have nothing left. I have nothing to offer to you. I've screwed everything up and I need you. I need your forgiveness. And I need you to provide me with something to offer to you. So this is what their repentance is like. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. This is some massive act of repentance. I mean, even those that are in the middle of a wedding, stop the wedding. Even the babies that are nursing, stop all that. Bring everyone, consecrate everyone. Let us consecrate a fast. And let us have the priests offer, sorry, and, and let us have the priests, the ministers of the, Lord, of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach and by word among the nations. Why should they say among the, among the peoples, where is your God? one really awesome thing about the bible is that the entire book is the the drama of redemption the the story of redemption but one of the really cool things is that often if not always whenever you read each each individual book you get a little picture sometimes bigger but you get a little picture of the story of redemption. You get a microcosm of the story of redemption. And this book is no exception. This book reminds us that even though God created all things good, even though God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and it was a beautiful place because of their sin, they brought destruction upon the world that God had created. They brought a curse upon the world that God had created. God himself was now their enemy. They were now under the wrath of God. And from that moment on, all of humanity was under the wrath of God. And because of our sin, we just kept sinning and sinning and getting even further and further and lower and lower which was all a part of God's marvelous plan of redemption so that during the perfect moment, he would call us to repentance. And in his mercy, he would leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. And in the story of redemption, just like these people, they have nothing to offer to God We are in the same place. We have nothing to offer to God, but God in his mercy provides the sacrificial lamb, provides the sacrifice, provides his son Jesus to be the one to be offered to God. Verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O God. Jesus is that priest, that minister, that on the cross he says, Spare these people, O God, because of my sacrifice. And so as we're going to see in the book of Joel, there is blessing prophesied to them. God will restore. God will restore the years that the locust has eaten. And there is even more. It says that in the future to them, in the past to us, God was going to, pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Their sons and daughters would prophesy, and everyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. And then it goes even further into the future, and it talks about the judgment and the punishment that those who continue to reject God and the perfect sacrifice of His Son will experience in the valley of decision. And then it talks about the blessings that all of those that trust in the Lord Jesus experience as now members of the new Jerusalem of Zion. So this book is a beautiful microcosm of the story of redemption. But let us not miss the point here. The Lord himself is the one sending the punishment. The the Lord himself is the one leading the army of locusts. The Lord himself is the one calling them to repentance. The Lord himself is the one giving them the necessary sacrifice for them to continue in relationship with him. Really, it is, salvation is an act of God. Judgment, even judgment that is so terrible It's an act of God's mercy to bring people to repentance. So what about us as the church today? So this was specifically, the book of Joel was specifically about God holding the people of Israel accountable for their unfaithfulness to the covenant that he made with them. That was the old covenant. And the Old Covenant meant that if they disobeyed God, they would receive curses. If they obeyed God, they would receive blessing. But we are under the New Covenant. So what does this mean for us? What are the implications for us? Well, even though we are under the New Covenant, it is a reality that when we sin, when we continue in sin, we, we mess things up for ourselves. We put a wedge between us and God. We, we spoil that beautiful relationship that we have with God. God is faithful to his covenant and he will not forsake us. He will never leave us or forsake us. But we are ruining things between us and God. We are, we are depriving ourselves from enjoying the blessings that we have in Christ. And so just like God calls the people of Israel to return to him, and just like God sends him a reminder, a very uh, intense reminder of their unfaithfulness, God in his mercy, if we continue in sin, will give us a reminder of our disobedience. God in his mercy will discipline us. But remember that the purpose of that discipline is that we would repent, we would turn back to him, and we would be reminded of his grace, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his character, that he is a gracious and merciful God, that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that he relents over disaster. And obviously the the, the big difference that I've, that I already mentioned, but I want to mention again, is that in their case, in order for them to continue in relationship with God, they had to be offering sacrifices over and over. In our case, the ultimate ultimate sacrifice has already been offered in Jesus. In their case, they had to have the priests. Pray on their behalf. In our case, Jesus is our priest. He is the one interceding for us. And let us remember that the same covenant that God made with them, with Abraham, the covenant of blessing them, is the same covenant that we experience. That God is blessing us that God has redeemed us through the blood of his son Jesus and that we are his people forever. We belong to him. So let us not continue in sin. Let us not take the day of the Lord lightly and say, oh, you know, that would never happen to me. Rather, let us take this, let us heed this warning. Let us not be complacent about God's wrath and punishment. Because even though our covenant His covenant with us is secure and His love for us is secure. The Bible, even the New Testament, is filled with warnings and saying, do not practice these things, sexual immorality, idolatry, covetousness, all of those things, because you know that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So let us take those warnings seriously. And if you are continuing in sin, I beg you to turn back to God. I beg you to turn back to the Son, Jesus. And say, I am sorry for sinning against you. I am sorry for trampling on your blood. And so with that in mind, let us celebrate. Let us remember the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Let us remember his blood that was given for us. And so right now, if you have sin in your heart, if you have uh, uh, unrepentant sin, I would encourage you to stop right there and to confess it to the Lord. To return to him. Before you come and take of the bread and the cup, and then as we sing together this uh, new song that we're gonna sing, we can come up here and grab of the cup, grab of the of the bread, and then we'll eat them together at the end of the song. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are merciful. You are slow to anger. You are so ready to forgive us, Lord. You are like the father in the, in the parable of the prodigal son who is so, so ready to receive us back. Thank you, God, that in your mercy... The punishment, the wrath that we deserved because of our sin was placed upon your son when he died on the cross. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted, that we wouldn't have a complacent attitude, much less that we would not trample upon the blood of your son Jesus, Lord. But as we celebrate communion, as we drink of this cup, as we eat of this bread, may we remember in awe and in gratitude your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.